Michael? Go ahead, kid. Open the box. It won't hurt you. Who are you? A friend of your brother's. Open the box, Corey. Well, if I were you, which I'm not, I wouldn't listen to him. Relax. He's only cloth and stuffing. <laughs> Besides, that bear doesn't get around much. I do. Trust me. Open the box. What is all this stuff? Why don't you see for yourself? Hurry! Don't you ever, ever, ever do this stuff. But you did it. I was a dope. I was wrong. <sighs> Then stop. Please, Michael. I don't know if I can. Face it, kid. We're buddies for life, whether you like it or not. You don't have to quit on your own. Talk to mom and dad. Listen to me, Mikey. I think I've listened to you long enough. Hey! You can't get rid of me this easy. I'll be back, and you can battle. Dad does. Dad does. Oz, drugs. Dad does drugs. Hello, and welcome to episode thirteen of Dad Does Drugs, the final episode of the series, I think. There may be one or two more to come, but not until a bit later in the summer. So for now, this is it—a baker's dozen of harm reduction podcasts, made with the aim of providing some evidence and thought-provoking insight from a range of guests who know a bit about drugs for parents and teenagers like me and my son to listen to and then chat about. So young people. And he's one of them. In 2019, aren't sent out into the big wide world of youthful exuberance, experimentation, hedonism at festivals, Ibiza, or just down the park at the weekend, with a three-word message: "Just say no," ringing in their ears, but without any real reasons or clarity to just say no to what and why and what would happen if I don't. So I decided about a year and 13 episodes ago that just say no wasn't enough. I wanted to arm my children with some more honest and open dialogue than that, and so I decided to read up and do it myself. I guess I can't tell whether it's been a success. Will I ever know? As far as my own kids are concerned, they all need to grow up, navigate teenage years and their twenties before I can sleep easy. And what's the measure of success anyway? I think it's been a great opportunity for me to bring some open and honest drug-related chat to my kids. They've engaged with me in it, and I think some helpful messages will have been communicated. It's safest to not use any drugs, but if you do, then waiting as long as you can before you try them is best. An adult in their twenties will handle substances better than a teenager.、Uh, not all drugs are the same. Some are really harmful, some less so. Tobacco and alcohol are legal, but also very harmful. Don't forget that. Mixing substances is worse than trying one on its own. And the main two, really, are one: information is available. Don't try anything you don't know about. It's available online by following Twitter feeds of drug information organisations like Erawid, Drugwise, The Loop, Dansafe, others that we've talked about on the podcast. And number two, the other key one for my kids. You can talk to me about any of it. You can call me whenever and from wherever, and I'll help. 
not judge or give you a bollocking. As far as other people listening, so that's you and your kids, well, feedback has been pretty positive from what I've heard. It's not been an iTunes chart topper, but it's out there in the pod cloud forever now. And I've done press interviews on BBC Solent, Leeds, Manchester, Surrey, Sussex and Scotland with five live to come next week. And that would never have happened if I hadn't made a podcast to talk about. So it might be picked up by more people over time and could have more positive effects with more people. Interestingly, my daughter Coco, who's 11, told me this morning before school that she's having a PHSE lesson about smoking and drugs this week. She says she'll feed back what it's like later. So that's great, isn't it? We've made it a normal thing to talk about, which bodes well for the future. I'll talk with my son... Credence, who's almost 14 now, at the end of the episode, get his thoughts on the experience of doing the podcast, and I'll also pay him, finally, for his participation. Before then, though, a fascinating final episode conversation with Professor Sue Price from Nottingham University, who teaches a module on the politics of drugs, and she also has a very personal involvement in the drug world via her son, as she'll explain. Hello. Hello, is that Sue? Yes. Hello, Sue. Has it worked? It has worked, yes. Uh, fantastic. Oh, good. Good. Excellent. Right. Uh, I'm recording all of this, so um, right. if, if you're happy for me to just blather on and chat and yes, then have a bit of a natter with me, that's great. Uh, so I am um, sat in one studio and Sue Price is sat in a different one and we don't know each other and I know what <laughs> Sue looks like but I don't think she, unless she's Googled me, uh, then I don't think she's got any idea what I look like. I don't know what you look like, Bob. I, sh- I feel ashamed that I haven't Googled you but I, it's not my first thought to Google people. Either. No. Um, I'm not really what you call social media savvy either. <laughs> right. Uh, well, yeah, I've got a bit of a social media presence, but not much of one. And I think if you do Google me, you get a picture of me wearing a cycle helmet doing a thing for sport relief about five years ago. So anyway, um, that's by the by. The reason that we're speaking to each other is because I went to my first ever academic symposium a couple of months ago so this was november of 2018 and it was called street drugs in the big smoke perspective and policy and it was in london at london metropolitan university and first speaker on or maybe second speaker was um professor sue price and uh, and i took lots of notes sue so um if you had have looked oh, uh, to your right <laughs> about five or six rows back you would have seen i was quite keen and excited i uh, might have thought you were writing to your family or doing your youtube or something <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> remember well, was, i'm used to students <laughs> yes well I, I was writing in with a with a pen on some actual paper rather than uh typing oh, it into gosh. a phone or something you like sound that like me <laughs> yes and uh, i did text a couple of times to my wife who's um an academic in a completely different field to you uh saying i'm really enjoying this university's fun i'd forgotten about it so uh i, I was quite taken and um i, I enjoyed your talk and i'd love uh, to Thank kind you. of um talk to you now and maybe you can sort of uh, run through some of those things it was sort of about the um the history and the politics around uh, drug prohibition and why yes. drugs are banned all over the world and how that came to be and then your view on whether you think that's working or not and um, and then the other thing that you sort of dropped in and didn't really elaborate on a lot was that you have a son in prison who's a heroin addict and has been for many years yes. and and that you had had to buy 
heroin for him and so on over the years and I uh, was sort of staggered that you mentioned that as a as an aside and I would love if you don't mind me asking you to sort of talk about that a bit as well. No I don't mind talking about it um uh, obviously it's been quite an important um theme in my life because my son has been a heroin addict for 21 years now probably slightly longer but anyway 21 years sounds long enough so we'll stick at that yeah gosh well maybe maybe we'll come to that in a minute and because uh, i'm sure it sort of weaves in 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 the story of uh of your life so you're you're a professor um are you a criminologist sort of by no, trade i'm in politics right um i'm in the school of politics here at the university of nottingham and I've taught British politics and American politics. But my son's drug use kind of pushed me in a different direction. And I was teaching here, but training to be a substance misuse counsellor, to be a voluntary counsellor, because at that particular time, I think my son was probably in prison then, that must have been, yeah, 20, 21 years ago. And I became more interested and then I thought, well, I would quite like to go and work in a prison as a drug counsellor. So I started to kind of train and move in that direction and then I happened to meet somebody, I think he's now at LSE, Professor Ed Page, and he, he was our external. He said, why don't you teach something on politics and drugs and that kind of got me interested and I moved from looking at prime ministers and advisory systems and presidentialization and American politics and American political thought into drug politics which I've found extremely interesting. I've taught it at postgraduate level um, a module called narco-terrorism and at undergraduate level I teach politics and drugs which has been I have to say enduringly popular I'm not claiming that popularity comes as a result of my teaching it's more a result of the interest in something that's both um, pertinent up-to-date um, relevant and of interest to students anyway. Why are drugs banned? How come you can drink alcohol and people get drunk in the street and pick fights and end up walking around with half their clothes off and weeing in doorways and vandalising people's gardens and things? How come that can happen and yet you can't legally smoke things like cannabis where or take ecstasy where you dance all night go home sleep it off so it's obviously of interest to students and I remember a student actually saying once what I found really um, interesting and I never even thought about was the impact of prohibition on countries where they produce drugs and it, it covers lots of different things and therefore it is both relevant, it's got political theory and international relations and comparative politics. It's got all of that kind of thing in it. We look at gender, the idea of women and drugs and why is it different. 
should we legalise, shouldn't we legalise? What are the various harm reduction policies that countries are beginning to adopt? Costs of drug policy in terms of young people's life in prison? Costs in terms of using impure substance? So on and so forth. It, it covers a lot of things that are very seem to be very much of interest to third-year politics students who've done things like theories of politics, individual and the state, relationship between uh, human rights, civil rights, drugs, international relations, global politics. It covers a lot of areas as well as touching on obviously economics and. Um, law and sociology. And I guess students or just young people, or most of us probably sort of just feel slightly connected to the, the world of drugs. You you know, it's, yes. it's on your doorstep and, it, and it's a bit notorious. It's, it's kind of a, a nice visceral subject. And everybody subject. knows people who are doing something. Yeah. It's something that's illegal. And I'm not saying every student's using drugs, but a lot of students either have used them, do use them, or know other people who use them. So I found it's been interesting for them. I think that's why they sign up for the module. Yeah. Well, I, I've only really come to reading about uh, the war on drugs and uh, different people's view on drug policies and things in the last few months. And I feel like it's one of those things, once you've let the genie out of the bottle, you can't, you can't not know it anymore. And then, and then it sort of strikes you as just crazy that all, all of these uh, drug laws are still being backed up by governments and law enforcement agencies, uh, but they just don't seem to work anywhere. Yeah, it's at a huge cost as well to us, the taxpayers. Why have we banned the drugs that we've banned? Ah, now, you see, that's the interesting thing. Logic would tell us that we ban drugs because they're dangerous to the individual. And I always grew up with the idea that if you used heroin even once, you instantly became addicted. Yeah. I also believed that it would kill you. Now, both of those things are part truths, but you can also become addicted to alcohol, to tobacco. So why choose heroin? What, what was it about heroin? Well, Basically, if you look at the... Long before international drug control, which starts in 1909, long before that, countries had banned one or other substance, but they tended to allow some substances, recreational, drinking, or some places. It might have been hashish or cannabis or opium smoking, etc. But gradually, you get industrialization and you get people manning machinery and people have to have their alcohol curbed at that period you get the growth of the prohibition movement in many countries right. around the turn of the 19th century then we get into the 20th century why is it that it's cocaine cannabis and opium or opium-based uh, drugs that are banned not alcohol and tobacco well, again, you look at the countries who were the most powerful at that turn of the century time, and they were the producers of alcohol and tobacco, and they also um, wanted trade with China, and China was in the throes of an opium epidemic and was very close to outside trade. So Britain fought the first drug wars 
forcing China to accept our opium. And then by the turn of the century, we start banning the three plant-based drugs. Those were the main drugs at that time. And then from then on, it's just you know, blossomed from every new drug that's created almost is, and certainly in this country it's true since the new Psychoactive Substances Act, every new drug is more or less banned. And so you can have alcohol and tobacco unless you're living in, in one of the countries that ban alcohol, but not much else. And um, that has benefited the Western world without doubt. And, but um, that's not the only reason. I mean, that's that's an economic explanation for... Yeah, is there, is there a kind of moral crusade about it as well? Is it just that, you know... Oh, yeah. We don't what like having fun. Is <laughs> Well, what happens in countries is you prohibit something. That's the law. Then you reinforce it by all sorts of social norms. So we all grew up, I'm talking about myself here, believing how dangerous the um, prohibited drugs were. And although most people, even when I was at university in the 70s, thought that cannabis was not very dangerous, it was still very taboo. Now, a lot of that's changed now. People realise that actually all drugs are dangerous. I say this to my students all the time. There's no such thing as a a danger-free drug. Lots of things in life are dangerous. But... Cannabis is not more dangerous, say, than alcohol. Alcohol is one of the most dangerous drugs in the world, if not the most dangerous drug in the world. So you have to then start saying, well, why do we force people to... Why do we say to people, if you want to relax, chill, you know, get out of it, whatever it is people get from drugs, then why are you allowed to do that only with alcohol, not with, say, smoking a spliff, sitting at home, passing a spliff round and getting the munchies and eating chocolate? Yeah. So, and I'm not for one minute saying that drugs are harmless. Yes, there are links um, between cannabis and psychosis, but whether cannabis causes psychosis is far from proven. It's It's something that... There is a coincidence of occurrence of psychosis and cannabis use in people of the same age. Um, But it doesn't necessarily say it's causal. There is a link. There is a connection. Does making things illegal, uh, does it look like it slows people's interest in them? I don't know. Look, Bob, there will always, that will always be part of it. How do I know that it does deter people? and that, much as I hate to admit it, governments are right on this. When we had the methadrone fuss, if you remember, a few years ago, everybody was saying young people were using methadrone because it was legal. And it was legal. Then the government banned it. People still use it, but it's gone underground. It's got expensive. But at the time, it does show you that some people who perhaps wouldn't have used drugs would use them if they were legal. And that is obviously a bit of a worry. But is it any more of a worry than using alcohol? I mean, I don't use any drugs. I don't use alcohol or any illegal drugs. I've never felt the need for it. But I do understand other people do feel that need. Yeah. 
And I, I sort of feel I, when I've heard people talk about and they give 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 other examples of countries that have decriminalised or are legalising uh, some substances, and they say, oh, it doesn't look like there's a, any great upsurge of of uptake of, of young people suddenly trying it. I sort of feel like. I don't know if I could see that being the same in the UK because it seems like we are a nation of binge drinkers and big Friday nights and Hindus and and what have you. And I sort of think if you suddenly made party drugs legal, there'd be thousands more people going out that weekend and using them. But then I do think that those things would even out over time and, and with a bit of changing of the culture around how you use drugs and, uh, and what you use them for then it might be more sensible to have them legal and know what they were and have them regulated than have them only bought through uh, dealers. Yeah, uh, the, just to clarify for people, the there is a distinction between decriminalising and legalising. Decriminalising, as in Portugal and several places elsewhere, is to say you will not get a criminal record and you will not be sent to prison for possession of this drug. But legalising says, right, we will legalise it, we will sell it like alcohol. Legalising doesn't mean a free-for-all, it means regulating it. We will regulate it, we will sell it like alcohol um, or tobacco or something like that. Now, clearly, if you decriminalise, you still leave the supply of drugs in the hands of criminals. Drugs will still be impure and young people will still not know what strength the drug is that they've just bought. So that still leaves a lot of potential danger to young people. If you legalise, you take away that danger by saying, okay, you can overdose, you can overdose on anything, but this is the recommended amounts, this is how you should be using it, and this is how we're going to sell it. So it probably would reduce the harm. It would increase the use initially. But, you know, in this country now, an awful lot of people snort coke or use ecstasy at weekends. The idea that legalising it will make a whole lot more people use it, I'm not sure about that. I I don't think there would ever, ever be a flood towards the use of heroin. People know that heroin can mess your life up royally whether it's legal or illegal it's it's a very it seems to be shall we say a very addictive substance a a lot of people actually you know you're taking away the frontier of oh let's go behind the bike shed and try a cigarette let's go behind the bike shed and you know smoke a spliff it's sometimes things are even more attractive if they are illegal yeah, I'm sure part of the appeal is the sort of slightly illegal rigmarole of and and the, the setup and the, and the setting of it all, isn't it? You know, so for, I'm sure that 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 is an appeal and it's glamorized in movies and things like that. So it has a sort of yes. a rock and roll mystique about it. Um, yes. And although heroin use has been put in movies, obviously Train Spotting for me uh, as a um, a youngster in the 90s, uh, that was a, a big one. Ne- didn't necessarily glamorise it, and I've always had the, uh, you know, whenever I've heard of heroin, I've never, I've never th- thought of it as an appealing thing to to try. Unlike other um, drugs, which just sort of do seem attractive. So, um, what what happened to your son then? How how did he 
end up doing heroin? Well, again, he was in that generation that came out of school, I suppose it was the mid-90s. I don't know when it was, actually. He's 41 now, so it would have been about then. Right, I'm 42, and, so, yeah, it's my age. Right, he, he, he did um, try drugs. Now, I was quite surprised he tried drugs when I found out, and I, I said to him, look the problem you're facing with drugs is a they're illegal and you could get picked up and get a criminal record and b they're not from mr boots the pharmacist so you don't know what you're buying i never for one minute thought he would go on to use heroin and he went on in a way by what's often regarded as a classical progression he went to a dealer he was getting some cannabis and the dealer hadn't got any and said try a bit of this and he did try a bit of heroin and he he said that he only used it very rarely but he started using it on a maybe on a saturday and then on a wednesday and then on a friday and a saturday and it the, his addiction wasn't instant. By the time I found out about it, he was well addicted. He was picked up at a drug dealer's house and the police arrested him. And he said to me, if ever I'm arrested, search my room. Um, that's all he said to me on the phone. He rang me. They let him ring. He was, I don't know, he was 18, 19, I suppose. Anyway, I searched his room and I found loads of tinfoil with these brown lines on, which were completely meaningless to me. I had no idea what they were. I thought people injected heroin. I never for a minute thought it was heroin. And I found some green liquid in a bottle, which was methadone, but I didn't know at the time. So it was all a bit of a shock when the police released him on bail to find that he was addicted to heroin and... We went through all the typical things, you know. We went through all the kind of, what, how can we get help, what can we do? There was very, very little help at the time. There's much more, well, it's not as available now, but there's much more you can find out. And, and I went to the doctor and he said he knew nothing about heroin addiction. And So we were in a tough place and we were lucky enough to be able to afford to send him to places, but... He didn't stay anywhere. <coughs> and he was prosecuted for being involved in the supply of ecstasy socially. That meant he was buying it and selling it to his friends. Now, how big a dealer he was, I don't know. I got, I'm not trying to minimise it. Because if ever I hear parents say, he got in with the wrong crowd or she had the wrong sort of boyfriend no with very rare exceptions nobody forced your child to take drugs they took them they knew they know the consequences okay they're young and they're daring but we can't blame other people for these things and so he became very addicted he got an opportunity to be detox by the state he walked out on that he walked out on several expensive things that we paid for like the priory and clouds house and all this sort of range of stuff and i realized how severely addicted he was and he eventually went to prison for that ecstasy uh charge but he got an extra six months for being caught in possession of crack 
and heroin for his own use. I think he was the first person where we lived to be picked up for crack. That's one little note of fame. And it was very, very difficult. I always believed that, you know, if you find out the right information and throw your resources in it, it's going to work. But that's not true. In the end, when he came out of prison the first time, I realised he was still addicted from what he used to tell me when he was still in prison, and that was if there was any heroin on the block, he was obsessing about it all the time, which told me that psycho by this time I'd trained in sort of counselling, it told me that psychologically he was still very addicted. And so we started buying his heroin, and people are shocked, and I've done programmes about it, and people have done phone-ins, and how could you do this to your child and things. But I just feel you don't know what you're going to do until you're dealing with the problem. You can't divorce your child. If your child falls off a horse, do you abandon them? And if your child tries drugs and they become addicted, do you abandon them? I was lucky enough to have the resources to be able to buy heroin for him. And so I suppose I did what I regarded was harm minimization. I thought, I'll pay for his heroin. That'll keep him out of prison. He won't be robbing other people. He won't be selling drugs to other people. He won't be living off the taxpayer in prison. And I didn't see prisoners doing any good. So we paid for his heroin his drugs right up till this summer, I suppose. And, um, and is he back in prison now? He is. Right. Um, not straightforwardly for that. He was involved in a car accident in which he, um, the other driver was killed on a motorbike. He wasn't under the influence of drugs at the time, but drugs were involved it's complicated and obviously it's probably too detailed to discuss yeah. but drugs were involved it's drugs that have ended him up he was coming over to me to get money to buy drugs I told him not to he did and he had an accident his children were in the car they were fine but the other driver wasn't and that's been a terrible terrible shock and we've had a terrible time and he's now in prison and he's actually doing quite well which surprises me, but he is. And he's off drugs, he's on Subutex, he's trained as a drug mentor, he's working in the library, he's doing lots of things, but unfortunately it's those of us left outside and he's got two stepchildren and three children under five and his, uh, his partner also has quite a lot of problems, so it's managing the family rather than managing my son at the moment. Wow. Um. So the nature of the problems changed. I mean, people have asked me, how did you go and score drugs and what was it like and meeting heroin dealers in Nottingham and things? Well, they were just ordinary people, you know, just like anybody else, I guess. They don't all walk around with a gun under their arm and, you know, a lot of them are paying for their own addiction by selling drugs and of course I stupidly thought we would be able to wean uh, my son off drugs 
by eking out what we gave him and reducing it. But you can't do that simply because what you buy day one might be 20%, what you buy day two might be 10%. So to try and regulate what you're doing was almost impossible. Yeah. Um, I've read um, uh, recently about, sort of reading a bit about addiction, and Professor David Nutt uh, written about the fact that... Yes, who's a friend. Right, um, and he's a a pharmacologist. Yes, psychopharmacologist famous for being the one that was sacked by the government when he gave them uh, information <laughs> that they he's didn't coming want. up to talk to my students in february he comes up every year he's very right good. um well he um yeah he'd written uh, sort of saying that addiction is like a disease that uh, you know or this is his explanation of it a bit like a long-term chronic illness like a like yes. an asthma where for most you know if you get it under control you can live for years with it under control but there's the possibility of having sort of episodes where it yes. flares up again. And so I suppose, do, do you have that feeling looking forward? You, you saying that your son sort of seems to be doing well. Uh, do you still have that thought where you can't really plan for a future for him because you, you don't know what, quite how it's going to go? Of course, of course. Because when he, when he comes out of prison, he will then have had two spells in prison and a lifelong addiction to heroin. Who's going to employ him? And that's the problem. He's highly skilled in IT things. He can do 3D websites and everything. But he's, he's not a good employment prospect because of how's he going to get references? How's he going to write a CV? It's that kind of thing. We didn't just pay for his heroin because lots of people sort of say to me, well, what did you go and pay for his heroin for? Why didn't you pay for detoxes? Yeah, we did all that. Um, why didn't you pay for courses? Yeah, we did that too. And he's, he's highly skilled in IT. He's imaginative and intelligent and all those sort of things. But if he comes out and doesn't get a job, or he's rejected by his children, which he absolutely adores and lives for. I don't know what will happen. I don't know. I'll just have... I always... I'm an incredible optimist, (laughs) which sounds sounds like like a contradiction in terms, but I am. I always travel hopefully. And, you know, I had a letter from my son recently where he said... Mum, I want to say that you've been my best friend and you've been parents, that you've been outstanding parents. If I could be half the parent to my children that you've been to me, I will feel proud of myself. And I thought, yeah, I have stuck with you because you're my child and you're not a murderer. Okay, he has had an accident and somebody has died, but he's not a murderer or a rapist or a child molester. He's just a blooming addict, for God's sake. And he came out of school at a time when we were dealing with the sort of post-Thatcher deindustrialization and also the post-Afghanistan heroin boom in this country. Now, I'm not blaming those things. He's got a brain in his head. He didn't have to do it. But it was, there was a lot of it about, and a lot of people fell by the wayside. Did you blame yourself? And have you kind of thought, what could I have done differently? I, I have asked myself that, of course. And loads of people on courses I've been on and various conferences I've been to, and when I was training to be a counsellor, people say the words, I blame the parents. And I think, 
I wonder why you blame the parents. What is it that you think parents have done or not done? Parents, usually most parents are struggling to bring up their children as best they can. And I don't think you can blame the parents. I just think life's life. People fall by the wayside. People do daft things. Human beings take stupid risks. It's just the way life is. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty stoical about these things, really. Doesn't mean to say I don't ever shout, lose my temper, scream and lose my cool occasionally. I do all those things. Why me? Why me? Yeah. But, you know, it's, I don't feel I'm a particular victim. I, in fact, I don't. I've never felt that I'm a victim, actually. I feel I'm just... I wrote a poem once called In the Fallout Zone, and I feel I'm in the fallout zone. I've written something for Black Poppy, um, which used, was a user magazine, which, they, which the Guardian published under the name Anna White. I don't know why. They thought they needed to protect me. Anyway, it was called... The Guardian called it Desperate Measures. I called it A Dealer's Tale where I tell the tale of how I came to be dealing drugs to my son. And I've also written a piece, I think it was for Black Poppy, called Tough Love. And it's all very well people say, throw your addict out, you're not helping them, they've got to hit the bottom and all those sort of things. Well, I'm not sure that that's true. And each of us has to deal with these things how we think we can do best. I couldn't sleep in my bed at night if I thought my son was living on the streets, addicted to heroin and um, being beaten up by dealers who he hadn't paid or robbing people to pay for drugs. So I, I couldn't do that. That's how I am. And yeah. as long as I had the resources physically and mentally to support him i have and i still do and i guess you know every situation is more nuanced than you think uh there's a couple of movies out at the moment uh drug related one about a dad and, and his addict son beautiful boy um yes i'm which, interested to see that yes um and then there's then there's another one a clint eastwood one where he's and i think they're both based based on true stories he plays a a 90 year old white american guy who's a drug mule for a mexican cartel um moving coke around america um and he gets through all the stops and things because he's, a, he's old a, a old white and a and a war veteran um so um you know think things are just that is a true story actually I right remember yes. when they picked that person up they, they did eventually pick him up but uh so yeah but we the... waste so much money on this Yes. We talk about the NHS. The amount we spend on police surveillance, and if you remember, I was on... There was Neil Woods, who's also coming to my students in two weeks' time, to talk about undercover policing of drugs. And he was on talking about how policing of drugs converted him to realising there's no other way but to legalise and regulate. This is not going to work all this drug mule stuff at the moment and country lines is terrible it's terrible how can we sit by and let all that happen 
can you see that you know when's it going to change so when the home secretary sort of um legalized medicinal use cannabis recently and he said um this is absolutely not the gateway to recreational legalization um but 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 yeah sure you just only look at all these other countries and states in america doing it and you think well surely it's going to happen here oh it will it definitely will. Legalise, I think we'll do, we'll do a kind of step-by-step. Step. We'll decriminalise cannabis, then we'll legalise cannabis, and then we might do some of the others like ecstasy, magic mushrooms, these sort of things. Incrementally, I think it'll happen. Eventually, it, there's no point in what we're doing. It costs the country an absolute fortune. It ruins people's lives. It ruins human rights all over the world. It can't be right what we're doing. It just can't be right. And I don't teach my students legalisation. I don't make that argument to my students. I just show them what is. And some of them will remain absolutely strict prohibitionists, and I respect them for that. And some of them will change their mind. But I'm not trying to change their mind. I'm trying to show them what the policy is. And it's not quite what you think it is. We don't prohibit the most dangerous drugs. We prohibit a certain range of drugs. And that's the problem. And you'll never stop it. You could kill every heroin plant in the world. We've got the wherewithal, we've got the biological wherewithal to do this with coca and heroin and opium poppies and everything. People would just use synthetics. Why, would, why wouldn't they use drugs? They want, I don't want out of it, but certain people do. And let's face it, life is difficult. It's not easy and people need an escape. Yeah, and most so, people I think, um, you know, I've used ecstasy and uh, cocaine, not really cannabis, it was never my thing. But I've, when I've, it's just a, I'm not a depraved uh, zombie d- doing that. It's no. just a way to go out and, like you say, at a music festival, enjoy dancing until the small hours in a yes. in a kind of euphoric, happy way with good friends. And some really happy memories I've got of my 20s, I'm still friends with those people and still kind of feel those memories and the, those connections with those people quite vividly because of that shared experience. So uh, I, I think it's just part of it is a youthful rite of passage but some of it is just a human condition to want to enjoy yourself not necessarily get out of it completely but just to enjoy yourself a bit more than a tuesday evening when you go to bed early and read a book it's like people say oh i need a drink to sort of feel social well yeah but often people who drink become very aggressive they start social and end aggressive now people who take ecstasy stay social they love everybody now that seems like quite a good idea to me maybe we should be giving it out to more people i don't know it's a bit like brave new world where you go on holiday by taking a drug rather than um anything else yeah i don't know it's just a difficult problem because politicians are absolutely spineless. They come out like William Hague or when they've left politics and then they go, well, of course, we're doing it all wrong. We should leave. Yeah, say it when you're in there. Give some leadership. Tell people what it's really all about and stop this. And, and of course... The longer we had prohibition in the last century and this century, you have what 
Eisenhower called the military industrial complex. You have the prohibition industrial complex of people who have a huge vested interest in prohibition and nobody has a bigger vested interest in prohibition than drug cartels. It's their wherewithal. It's the easiest way to make money is to sell drugs because people want them. It's a transactional crime. Who's going to report you? One of the sort of main reasons, I suppose, for me doing this podcast as a, as a parent uh, is to hopefully help other other parents sort of reduce the harm to young people by having parents mm. be honest and, and have conversations where you don't... Uh, don't sort of pretend and forget that you ever tried any drugs when you were younger and suddenly say just say no to your children and hope that that works so you know let's have a a slightly more uh honest dialogue um and you said you talked to your son about drugs was that only after you'd sort of found out he was using them did did you ever no i did talk to him before it was he he was not an easy child he he'd always had difficulties so i suspect drug use was his his own medicating himself but uh no i said to him i tried cannabis when i was at university but i really couldn't sort of deal with it i didn't really want it and i'm a control freak anyway so i can't bear being out of control of my (laughs) wherewithal so and so i explained that to him and his father was in the military at the time and was a heavy drinker and a heavy smoker and i thought but those are drugs you know he's very heavy at the time he was very don't do drugs and I was "Mm, well yeah but you're doing them I would always say to parents it's not easy it's like a conversation about sexual intercourse with the kids it's not an easy conversation no because then they want to know if you do it if you see what i mean yeah and i just think it's better to say well i've tried drugs or yeah i tried them and i really liked them and i had a few good experiences but if you do try them these are the dangers you need to be aware of and take it from there um if you've used drugs be honest about it don't sort of lie. Student, children always know when you're lying. Students know when you're lying. I mean, I never lied to them. I, I just think, no, tell them the truth. And yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, at the moment, my kids are young. My, my eldest is 13. So I'm sort of u- using mm. this process to sort of start talking to him a bit more. But um, again, he's he's still at an age. I'm sure it will change over the next two or three years. At the moment, he doesn't. You know, he's just not interested in going out and smoking or drinking or hanging out on street corners and all that sort of thing. I suppose will gradually come in. And I, and and as those years go on, I want to be then still friendly enough with him, still close enough and trusted to be honest and keep having those conversations, so that he doesn't, you know, get himself in trouble trying to get drugs that he could have talked to me about, uh, you know, and, and certainly... Yeah. I think far be it from me to sort of give advice to parents. I'm not really an example of probably how people would parent. But I I would say I've always tried to make it possible for my children to come and tell me if they've got a problem. And I think, unfortunately, they always have. (laughs) And so I think if you can create a channel that's always open to your children and say, look, I'm not going to pry into everything. I'm not going to search your room or go on your social media. I'm not that kind of person. But I want you to know that 
if there is something that's worrying you and troubling you, or if you get into any kind of trouble, you can always come and talk it through with me and know that I will try and help you and not be judgmental. So I try not to be anyway. Yeah. Um, that's all you can do in the end. No, and and I think you know it sounds like the, the strength of your relationship with your son, the letter that he wrote you, and what have you. He's obviously really yeah. valued that that companionship along the way when you've been there in those really rough points. Um, yeah. One of the interesting things that you you said about how he initially tried heroin, I just sort of thought about the fact that he was going to a dealer for weed and then. Uh, he didn't have any yes. one one week, and so um, was offered uh, some heroin smoke instead. Um, I've bought drugs recently off the dark web in order to go and get them tested with the Loop drug testing people, yeah. and um, you know it's like eBay or or Amazon. It's, it's an absolute supermarket of you just click on things, and I suppose that that situation almost certainly could wouldn't arise now if you want to buy weed, you can buy it every day if someone's got yeah. some the, the the world has has moved on to a level where the, the 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 street dealer down the road isn't the only place where you can where you can get it so i suppose if if we did move forward and things were regulated and you could always buy you know regulated cannabis from a, a an outlet in your town then there there wouldn't be those sort of situations maybe of well, that escalation precisely. of drugs what the Dutch did in 1976, they said, let's separate the soft and hard drug market so that if people really want cannabis, OK, let them get it. We're not legalising and it still isn't legal in Netherlands, but we will control it so that if people are wanting cannabis, they're not going to come in contact with people who are selling other kinds of drugs. And it seems to work fairly well for them in the Netherlands. You'll never stop people using drugs. Never. And therefore, until you recognise that, you're stuck in this sort of cleft stick. And politicians have a duty to provide leadership. We're talking about them not providing leadership now. And they're providing no leadership in terms of drugs. They are simply kind of going below the parapet and saying, oh, not me, Gov, I'm not going to talk about it, it's too too electorally risky. Well, they need to come out and say, actually, it's time elections listen to them and electorates listen to them. After all, a lot of them are people who, like yourself, have experimented with drugs. So, you know, come clean. Politicians are to us what we are to our children, perhaps, and it's time to come clean and and talk about it and and say what we really think. Well, thank you for saying what you really think. Thanks, Sue. It's been um, <laughs> you can rely to on me to, to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's been that's been brilliant. And um, I, I saw that you you've written some books and obviously you write you write academic papers and things like that. Is there is there anything that you're doing that we can promote and let no, people know about? I don't about? think so. No, I do things on impulse if I do things. I didn't get a publisher, I just wrote a book and sent it out to the publishers. I just, I quite like to write a book on sort of what is the drug problem if I write on anything. But I'm I'm so busy, what with all these grandchildren and prison visits and working and I work, I live in one place. I've got 
my son in prison in one town, his family in another, I live in another, and I work in Nottingham. So I, I do sort of quite a lot of driving and I'm quite busy. I hope your, your children will survive drug use because they probably will dabble in it. So Yes. Um, but I hope yeah, that they'll travel optimistically. Yeah, I love I love that phrase. So yeah, and I hope I hope you continue with all the travelling and uh, so on. I hope you continue Optimism. to do it op- optimistically as well. Thanks, Sue. Nice to speak all to right you. Alright then, Bob. Nice to talk to you. Bye. Right, episode thirteen. Uh-huh. Last of the season. Maybe ever. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. What did you make of Sue? I really enjoyed that one. I honestly I think I really liked it. What did you like about it? I liked your opinion. I think I kind of agreed with it. Oh, which bits? It's interesting. Like, um the way that like it's not all legalization, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. Like she wasn't all one side or all the other. Mm. I liked like she was somewhere in the middle, and I think I kind of agree with that. Yeah. What's made you think that? Like, she was saying, oh, the government's got this bit right, and like, oh, yeah, about the, like... We shouldn't show about the Netherlands, how, like, they, like, say, like, oh... There's a bit where, like, she says... They've like, said they've they, gone to buy cannabis. Yeah. They won't get something else, they'll get cannabis. Right, yeah. And that's one of the main, like, good things about that. Although it's, like, they might go to buy cannabis and get heroin. Yes, I see, yeah. Yes, so, uh, I think there's coffee shops in Amsterdam where you can go and you know, obviously drink coffee, but but everyone goes there because you can buy cannabis in there. But you have to yeah. sort of you have to smoke it in the coffee shop. It's kind of a thing that you go and do. Um, Amsterdam's quite famous for it now since the 1970s. I think they they haven't legalised it, but they've decriminalised it. So in those coffee shops, you're allowed to do it. Oh, that's interesting. So, and what, where do you feel, feel like you're... Um, so you're in the middle somewhere, so you feel like you would legalise some things, but not others? Um, just in the way, like, it wasn't like the government's completely wrong, but they're not completely right. That's, mm. like, kind of not necessarily about the different drugs, just the way, like, not the hard and fast thing about the government itself, how, like... It's kind of a greyish area instead of being like, oh, that the government's bad at this drug and the government's good. It's like the government's good at this bit, the government's bad at that bit. And like, I think I like that more. Yeah, it's definitely true that lots of drugs have harms to them, and some people get more harmed by them than others. Yeah. So you need a government to do to do things to protect people, don't you? And I'm sure it was either her or, or someone said that our government is really good at. Uh, regulation really good at regulating things so we don't we're we're great at regulating alcohol because we we make it so that you can you you can't have super super strong alcohol that was that was made illegal so the strongest alcohol you can ever get is 40 percent alcohol and that's a a strong spirit a gin or a whiskey or whatever but it used to be before the regulation came in you might be able to get a 80 percent 70 percent Alcohol, and if you have more than a couple of glasses of that, you could die. You know, just you know, it's just too. It's like poisonous. So, uh, so we're good at regulating things like that. We regulate alcohol on age and things like that. Yeah. So, so maybe we could regulate some drugs that are currently illegal. Well, maybe we could regulate them well. Cannabis might be one of them. But then there's other drugs where you think, no, 
crack cocaine. We just need to keep it illegal and we just need to try and encourage the people that are using it not to use it because it's just... Put them on other drugs, perhaps? Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe. Like if we say, like, cannabis is legal or ecstasy is legal, then, oh, try this one. Well, maybe, maybe people would be, would move towards things which are less harmful. Yeah, not ideal to have people taking any drugs regularly. But yeah, you're right. If they if they were just doing something that was less harmful than the one they're doing, that would be a start. And then actually, if the maybe if the government wasn't spending so much money on police forces arresting everybody, they might have a bit more money, and people might have a bit more time to help people with addictions. Rather than just arrest them, so that might. Be yeah. Um, what did you think about her sort of moral dilemma that she was stuck in when when she found out her son was taking? Like, um, as in, well, as in, she decided that she would buy him heroin. I think it's the best thing. I think I was gonna. Yeah. I think like, I would criticize her for that. No, it's hard hard not to see why she did it, but it's a big risk. You know, mm. she could have been arrested any time. Yeah. And, or she could have been, like, stabbed by someone, you know, sort of someone clearly with some money going to buy heroin in probably a rough bit of town, you know, it's kind of a dangerous thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, risky. And and what would you do, uh, do you have a view on uh, on how we look after sort of addicts to serious substances like that, heroin and things like that, if you thought about any of that since like so they stopped this... like giving them the like slow down treatment they? they stopped like giving them less they stopped doing the treatment stuff didn't they yeah we we, we give people something called methadone now which is a, a little cup of you drink it and it kind of lasts for 24 hours and it's a, a slow releasing version of an opiate painkiller but you don't get the hit. You don't. You don't get high like you do off heroin. Heroin, you inject it in, and a, you know, a few seconds later, you're like swimming in Never Neverland. You know, it's like oh, all my pain's gone. Whereas if you take methadone, it's a, it's a bit like having a paracetamol. Very gradually, it soaks into your bloodstream, and and the pain will go away. But you don't get that rush of yeah. of a hit. So 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 it's not got the same addictive quality to it so we give people that but what some people say you know what we've talked about a bit is that uh, if you just gave people heroin and it was clean and came from the nhs then they could get on with their lives and maybe over time they would gradually give it up and that's what we used to do but now we make that illegal so yeah i i think i i think i subscribe to the view that we should just give them heroin on the NHS and yeah. cut, cut out all the crime, cut out all the criminals supplying it, you know. Has there been any, um, how, have you, how have you found the whole podcast doing experience and the whole conversations about drugs? Um, I found it just in terms of like, the technical moulder of the drugs. Um, my opinion on them really hasn't changed overall because I never really have much of one. Like, I have an opinion on the laws, just that on the concept of taking drugs itself, I'm, I'm not completely, I'm just not something that really is ever, like, in my mind. Yeah. In general, just not something I really think about. No. Well, I mean, you're 13 years old and you're doing 
you're not doing anything that brings you into contact with the drugs or anything like that, are you? So it's sort of not on your radar at all, really. But I think it's good to know about them and to demystify things. You know, they're, they're not a sort of strange, mysterious thing that you've never really heard about, but suddenly at about age 16 or 17, a lot of people are talking about, and then you're kind of like, whoa, what's going on? You know? Well, I thought I never would have felt that. I never really would have felt that kind of complete lack of knowledge. No. I feel like I kind of have a general perspective of which ones are bad and like on the level of like severity, mm. just from general knowledge. Do you think you ha- you had that before? Do you think? I think mm. so, but just less of the information of like the laws, basically, is mm. what I'm most taken out of this. The fact that like getting help would not incriminate you. Yeah, that's what like interests me the most. Yeah, oh, well, I think that's vital. Yeah, if you're with people then he's just got to put people's safety above anything else and no one would arrest you for... And no one would arrest them, you know, if they're in hospital having had an overdose of something. Yeah. Then, you know, people would be worried about them and concerned about them and would talk to them afterwards about not doing things that are going to be harmful to them, but they wouldn't put them in jail or you for getting into hospital, you know, everyone would be massively relieved and delighted that you'd got help, so. Yeah. Hmm. Well, thanks for doing it. Yeah. We might do some more episodes, but also if we don't and you just are ever thinking, oh, that's weird, my dad once talked about that or whatever, if you want to ask about anything, then do. Yeah. And I will um, transfer, so I think I paid you £10 for the first two episodes, so I will transfer... The remaining £55 to a trust fund to be accessed when you're 27. You can then use it for whatever you want. <laughs> no, brilliant. Thank you for doing it. Uh, end of season. Boom. Done.